For those of you who are here bright and early, uh, Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to go eventually. Um, That's kind of the main part of what our teaching is today. Um, But we've been in a series looking at what the ancients call the three enemies of the soul, which is the flesh, the world, and the devil. And um, Trent, is there a chance we could turn some of the house lights up? I can't even see faces. I, I need to see faces. Not Dan's. Can you not? Can you turn his, the light on Dan down? But that, I'm just kidding. All right. um, we've been doing this, this teaching. Um, and, and one of the things that has been really interesting is the, the more I dive into this, for me personally, the more I realize that ignorance is not bliss on this subject. Like, this is something for me personally that has uh, stirred up so much in my life um, to reflect on and to think about and to uh, really look forward to in many ways. Uh, One theologian said this, the chief dispute in the world is who has authority and who deserves to be worshipped. Now, if you think about the world in that kind of context, the chief dispute in the world is who has authority and who deserves to be worshipped. There's a lot that kind of comes in, into that. And it makes me think of a guy named Ignis Semmelweis. You probably don't know who that is. But he was a Hungarian physician in the 1850s in Vienna. And I read this a few weeks back, and it's pretty fascinating Ignis was a physician, and he was in charge of two wards, two different wards that were both, um, at both wards was the delivery of children, was actually a place where uh, families would come and deliver babies. And in the 1850s, obviously, mortality rates were a little higher than they are now. But he had two different wards, and what was happening was that in one of the wards, uh, there was a much higher survival rate than one of the other than the other ward, and Ignis was flabbergasted by this. I mean, it was the same procedures, the same you know that they did the same things in each one. One of them was full of midwives. Um, there were women there delivering children. The other ward, for whatever reason, had a lot of male doctors delivering children. And in the, in the ward that had the male doctors delivering the children, there were more and more rates of infant mortality and even of mothers passing away. And Ignis could not explain this. He was just like, this is ridiculous. And, and it was like, after a, a long series of time, he kept trying to figure out what was going on. And he was actually one of the first uh, physicians to discover that there's something unseen at work that we can't see with our naked eye, but there's something unseen at work, and that was germs. The doctors, the male doctors delivering in the ward, would also perform autopsies on the dead. And they would leave their autopsy without washing hands, and deliver children. Now, for us today, we were like, oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, when you go to a hospital now, there's like a Purell station like every 
five feet, and I use those. So I'm freaked out at hospitals. But in the 1850s, that wasn't the case. Germs were not a common... That, and in fact, all of his colleagues mocked him. And he said, I can't, I can't prove this scientifically. But there is something microscopic. There is something happening here that I can't explain. And I think in, in many ways, that's kind of, in a sense, how I feel with the spiritual realm. This is a spiritual world. And we know it's there. and We cannot see it, but we have, it has effects that actually make a difference in our lives. It's a not seen but real world. And, and, and I would in, go as far as to say that there's, in a sense, a pollutant. There's a pollutant in our world that has a serious effect on us as human beings and on um, the world around us. Uh, Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world three times. Uh, Paul called the devil the prince of the power of the air. And if we're the kind of people that if scripture's uh, real in the sense that it tells us that we have eternity in our hearts, that we're all born with this like ache and this yearning for eternity for, uh, you know, something, we're, we're homesick for a place we haven't yet been. What I think this whole conversation tells us is there's something against that. And in Luke chapter four, we're going to actually look into the life of Jesus, but really briefly, we're going to take the detour to, where do we always start when we talk about this stuff? Genesis three. <laughs> we always start. I think it's really important. We're going to briefly, really quick hit Genesis 3. Um, up until Genesis 3, the garden, shalom, uh, everything's flourishing how it should up to this point. Uh, there's wholeness and the potential for humanity to multiply, to flourish, all of that. And then Genesis 3.1 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other, any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And so there's that classic question. We've talked about this before. Did God really say, did God actually say that this was truth? And it's a subtle deceit. And, and in a sense, creating a window of doubt, okay, in Eve's psyche. And when earlier we see in Genesis 2 that God says, I, I've given you everything. And so now in, in, in Eve and in us, in our psyche, rooted deep in us is this idea that God is holding out on us. That if we say to no to one thing, that we're actually missing out on everything. And the woman says to the serpent in verse 2, she says, We may eat of the, of, of the trees from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. So this is that whole father of lies piece, this idea that... Um, he speaks his native tongue. Uh, Jesus mentions this in John chapter 8. Um, and everything really is set up against um, the glory of the image of God in Eve and in Adam and in you and in me. 
And it's this subtle deceit, and then it turns into a blatant deceit. And then in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And so then we, we find out later on as the story goes, remember scripture's one giant story, it's an ark. And in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah talks about this. Paul talks about this. He sends to the Roman Christians um, that we exchanged, that we being humans, be, as, as you know, offspring of Adam and Eve, we exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And we do this all the time. The glory of God, okay, we gave that up to take a lie. And all through scripture, God is desperate to show that he is faithful and compassionate and loving. And, 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 but this lie is so strong in us that we have a hard time believing it. And so we be, begin to believe other things in our lives that just aren't true. We begin to believe other scripts and other stories, uh, maybe words and phrases that people have told us, uh, maybe things that we just, subtle things that have come up in our lives that we've, we've, we've believed that we're not good enough, that we're not this or that, or we're not, you know, we're not lovable, whatever it is. And, and the question is, did God really say that? Did God really say? So Luke chapter 4, background on this, Jesus has just been baptized. He was uh, this amazing moment. Um, and, and, and he gives us some keys to what it looks like to um, hear those, those lies and to do something about it. And remember the three great questions that we, we hear in the garden and actually Jesus hears here is, they, they, in all of our life, these are the questions that really, really sometimes get us off track. Who is God? Who are we or who am I? And what is the good life or how do we live it? And these are questions about theology, anthropology, identity, and then morality, sociology. Like, how do we do this? And what you'll find is in the garden and in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is about to have this interaction with um, the devil, is these are the main questions. These are the ones that trip us up all the time. So Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we'll whip through this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. This idea of wilderness versus the garden is a really uh, pretty amazing um, juxtaposition, right? A garden that's flourishing, a wilderness that's just barren. Um, Jesus heads into the wilderness and... Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience for people, okay? It wasn't one of those things where nowadays we, we find ways to uh, survive outdoors and we have fun, backpack or magazine, whatever. You, you go into the wilderness, you have a fun time learning how to survive out in the wilderness with all these cool fancy gadgets, things like that. Jesus went into the wilderness with none of those things. He didn't have a solo stove. He didn't have, uh, you know, uh, you know, Temperature drops at night in the wilderness. Whatever. He didn't have a, you know, a 40 below bag. He went into the wilderness. And there was this spiritual, emotional, you know, desert time for him. 
no food. And he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. I'm sure. I'm sure it was awful. I'm sure it wasn't that fun to fast that long. Um, Fasting is an ancient practice that starves the flesh, starves our body to make room for the spirit. Okay. And so for some of you who have practiced fasting or have done it for an extended period of time, maybe to prepare for something that's coming, um, it's a, it's a really powerful spiritual thing. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, what he's doing is he's twisting truth to create doubt. If you are, right? He's playing at that idea of identity. If you are, and this is really important, and I think a lot of us overlook this. What the devil is doing here is he's actually testing Jesus's humanity. And I think that's super important. In the garden, it's flipped. In the garden with Eve, he's actually testing Eve when it comes to being more like God. He's actually testing humans, can you be God, is the question. And here in the garden, he's actually going to Jesus, he's actually going to God and saying, can you be human? Can you do this? Can you actually be human? And I think the biggest understanding is, is I've read and and, and, and studied and um, in my own life is the biggest misunderstanding in the church in the West is that we do not realize that Jesus was fully and completely human. And that's hard for us. We wrestle with this so much, like how human was he? He couldn't have been all human, right? I mean, I don't know if you've thought about this, but Jesus' humanity, he was not just God with skin on. Throughout the ages, there's been a number of heresies. There's been a number of ways to look at Jesus and to kind of figure out whether Jesus was God. I mean, was Jesus fully God or was he human or was he partly human or was he sometimes human, sometimes God? Was, there was all these different heresies throughout the years. Um, second century, there was one called adoptionism, which basically believed that Jesus, when he was baptized... Uh, when he was tested and, and he passed the test, he was given, uh, he, he, be, he became God. He, he was given Godness. He was adopted by God and made into the Son of God. Um, there's this other one in second century um, that comes from a Greek word that means to seem like um, it, or to seem like he's God. And so there's almost like this idea that he appeared to be God, but he really wasn't. He was kind of like a hologram. <laughs> he wasn't real. Um, then there was another one. Um, this one came a little later on. He's got these big nerdy names to him, but I'm not going to go into all that. Um, that. That Jesus was fully human except for his mind. And his mind was divine. Okay. Um, so there's all these different versions out there of was God human? Was God, was Jesus human or was he God or was he both? Or how did that work? But he was fully human, completely human. 
And it's essential for our following of Jesus to understand that there was no part of Jesus that wasn't human. And we have to remember that Jesus is divinity and humanity in the same place. But I think for us American Christians or in the West, we actually emphasize Jesus' divinity. It's just safer. His humanity is kind of messier. Because if Jesus was completely human, that means that the things that Jesus experienced and, and pushed through on are things that we can experience and push through on. What God looks like and what true human looks like. What it looks like to be an actual, thriving, fully flourishing human being. Romans said, in the book of Romans, is Paul writing to the Romans said that through Adam, one man, okay, one man brought the curse, put everybody under the curse. Through Jesus, one man, how great of a life he could bring to many. The fact that Jesus is humanity is being tempted actually gives me courage. And it gives me courage and hope that there's things that I can learn from Jesus to actually silence some of these lies of the enemy in my own life. That there are moments in my life, that there are times in my life that I could actually believe and trust full of the Holy Spirit that I can actually silence the, the adversary in my life. And I don't know about you, but there are so many things that come at me. And it gives me hope because Jesus actually understood it and lived it. He's able to relate. And what Jesus does is he responds by quoting Deuteronomy. He says, it says, Jesus answered, and this is to the whole idea of turning this stone into bread. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, when I... I used to think, well, that's just a total Christian answer. That, that, <laughs> that just seems like a Sunday school answer. And then I, as I started digging into this a little bit more, it's like this realization that as a human being, we cannot meet all of our needs. Personally, we cannot meet all of our needs. And... We think we can. That's the thing that's so damaging. Especially for us. We have all these options. We're so capable. We can do all of these things. We can achieve more things. And we have everything, all these choices at our disposal. And it seems like we're still frustrated and unhappy and unsatisfied. Deeply. That whole idea of the more you have, uh, it just seems like the emptier you get. It's this idea that we think we can actually meet needs in our lives by accumulating things and having things and having all these choices in abundance. But Jesus actually says, my greatest need is spiritual and bread's not going to do it. Like this isn't going to fix it. And, and, and what he's getting at is he's out in the wilderness. He has nothing really at his disposal for comfort, for sustenance, for satisfaction. And he's provided this opportunity to turn something into something that might give him temporary satisfaction. And what he's able to do is look through that and say, no, that's not going to do it. And so what Jesus is getting at here is like these is really tacit, like... Um, 
deep aches and longings of being human. That material things don't satisfy. Like Jesus is actually leaning in on this idea that his greatest need is spiritual. His greatest need goes way deep inside. And and throw out all these things that we experience, uh, fear of not having enough, uh, fear of not being loved, accepted or known, that there's these subconscious, like powerful drives that, that, that really push our insecurities. And, and one of the things that we can understand is when it comes to things like binge eating and sex and addiction and spending and all these insecurities we wrestle with in our lives, like the idea that you could go out and buy a new and you could experience kind of like this, you know, wow, that was, I, I love these shoes. And then a week later go, I think I need another pair of shoes. And it just doesn't do it. Um, the true need goes way deeper, way more spiritual. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said this um, uh, uh, way back. He said, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Like those things in us, those what we think are deep um, aches and the things of this world will satisfy those deep aches inside of us. Really, what Jesus is getting at is, no, no, no. It goes way deeper. If you think it's, if you think it's this, chances are it's way deeper than that. So what's happening here is there's this temptation to meet our own needs. And so one of the ways that we learn from Jesus as he responds to this is that just like, you know, Ignis Semmelweis and the germs and the, there's, there's an antiseptic to some of this pollutant we experience. And I think the first one is voice recognition. Listen to this quote from James K. Smith. He wrote a great book. If you've never read this book, I would encourage you to grab it. He said, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but he forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. So those deeper, deeper places in us. And here's the thing, we're all being formed. We're all being spiritually formed, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And there are voices that you listen to. There's voices that you are listening to and you are, and you are pulling them into your life and into your heart and they're speaking into you and they're forming you. And what we're getting at here is this idea that Jesus even says, my sheep listen to my voice. And there's this still small voice specifically for you, and it's the good shepherd, and the shepherd is trying to communicate things to us and draw us in. And I, I really think that the first way of silencing the adversary in our life starts with voice recognition, recognizing the voice of God. Do you recognize God's voice? Now, one of the the things that I, I, I've been in, in my life many times, there have been times where I just, I haven't felt like I've heard from God. Like, I just feel like, and maybe you're experiencing this too, like, I just, I just think it's been, you know, a long time since I've really actually experienced God speaking 
to me and, and moving in me, in my heart. One of those reasons that I find in my life is I'm just too busy. I'm too busy. I, am lit- I literally go from one thing to the next and, 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 and all those things, okay, that I think are important are actually keeping me from listening and recognizing God's voice. And I would encourage you, if that's the case for you, I would encourage you to, to begin to find a way to carve time out in your life. And the other thing I would encourage you to do is, is read the Psalms. The Psalms, um, like Psalm 78, Psalm 78 talks about this word from God, this idea that God speaks into us. And if you're struggling to hear from God, sometimes the language of the Psalms helps us reorient our heart and our lives around what God's trying to say. And I think the first step to the um, the enemy kind of getting into us is this idea that we can meet our own needs, we can solve our own problems. And Adam and Eve had that choice. Israel had that choice. And you and I have that choice. So this doesn't work. So the enemy tries something else with Jesus. He goes, it says this, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. And here's the thing. I was a little confused by this one. I've been confused by this one. The question, like, how can, how can Satan offer this? Um, and I think what's really happening here is I think Satan knows the plan. I think he knows what's coming. And what he's trying to do is tempt Jesus with his very calling. Okay? So there's like, in a sense, you can skip ahead. Like this idea that why don't you just skip ahead on this one? Why don't you avoid the betrayal of your friends? Um, why don't you avoid, the, avoid the, the crucifixion? Why don't you avoid the garden uh, of Gethsemane? Why don't you avoid all these things and, and jump ahead, okay? And, and, and shortcut this. Uh, you know, push, the, push past this without all the suffering. Um, what's interesting is what we read all throughout the rest of the New Testament, Hebrews, it says that, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Uh, Philippians 2, it talks about him humbling himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You and I, his love for us, his love for humanity actually pushed him to obey and pushed through all of that. But there's this, there's this idea that we could jump past things. And, and maybe this is the case in your life. Maybe you think there's some really good things that, that God wants you to do, but, but you're, you're shortcutting those things in your life. Maybe you're, maybe you're uh, doing some things to, to shortcut that. And God really is just more interested in your heart, more interested in where you are right in this moment. And, and he doesn't want you to, to race ahead or, or, or do things out of disobedience so that you can avoid the suffering, avoid the pain. And I think the, the second way we silence the enemy in our lives is obedience. It's got to be obedience. Your greatest act of worship is obedience. It's the antidote to 
I guess the pollutant around us is to stay the course. Um, And this is a hard one. And as Jesus is continuing to respond, he responds with more scripture. And it's out of Deuteronomy. He says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And it says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Here's the tricky part about this one is actually the enemy knows scripture. He actually quotes Psalm 91. And I looked into this further and I was, because I was also confused by this. And in verse 12, it says, Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And I'm like, well, what is this testing thing? What is this all about? And it seems like all throughout Jesus' life, he's pretty passionate about it. Well, Jesus quotes from every single response Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And in context, what Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is, is God is testing the people of Israel. He's testing Israel, his people, to see if they can be a nation that shows the world what God is like. That's what's happening. God tests humans. For Jesus to do this would be for a human to test God. And in Psalm 78, I think it's really amazing. This idea comes up. And the psalmist calls it, the metaphor is like the string of a bow. So the cello bow over here. And how when that thing's tight, okay, how it's supposed to be, when that thing's tight, when that thing's tested, it actually makes a beautiful sound. But when it's not tight, when it's not being stretched, it can't make a sound. And so what the psalmists are saying is if God actually wants to make a sound through us, that God actually wants to do something, that he wants to, to, to make us taut and, and, and stretched, that he can actually make a sound through that in our lives. And it's a sound that's not going to be replicated because your life is completely different than the person sitting next to you. But God actually wants to make a sound through that. And then as a community, a community that chooses not to avoid suffering and not to shortcut things and not to uh, you know, push things off and not to avoid things and not to avoid hard things, uh, that God actually wants as a, as a community then to be a symphony of sound. Like that we make the kind of sound that God wants from our lives that are being stretched. They're being pushed. Whatever that is in your life. And here's the thing, playing it safe, if Jesus played it safe, he wouldn't have gone in the wilderness. But he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He's So many times in our lives, I think we ask God to prove himself. 
It's a really frustrating thing in the Christian culture. That God needs to somehow prove himself to us. But ultimately what that means is we're not in tune. That we're actually not able to make a sound. We think um, we, think we like uh, being challenged and risking and trusting. But this is all really hard. Especially when we are really suffering. And some of you are really experiencing suffering. Your story is God saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me in this? And at the same time, what you're experiencing is also the enemy saying, did God really say? I mean, this has happened so many times in, in, in my life and in the lives of people that I've, I've met with and they're, they're frustrated about their life circumstance or whatever they're experiencing in their life. And then they try, to, they try to twist things back and say, I don't know if God really meant that I shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that. The world will say God has to prove himself. Jesus says, no, I trust. And so the third bit of silencing the adversary is requiring us to trust. The Aramaic word for trust is actually to throw yourself down in complete surrender. To throw yourself down in complete surrender. Like that is a little different than our word for trust. Like our English version of trust is like, yeah, I trust. It's just not that heavy. It's not that full. I mean, it's this idea of just your whole self, your whole body, throwing yourself down onto the ground in complete surrender. And this morning, you know, as we wrap up our conversation about the devil in this series, there's a voice calling out to you. And this is the subtle voice of the spirit saying, I want to do more in your life. I want to speak more. I want to heal more in your life. And apprenticeship to Jesus is not a life that's meant to be lived in a safety bubble. And the Spirit's trying to draw us out and to push in and participate and allow God to tighten the bow. And our response is one of voice recognition, obedience, and trust. And here's the subtle trap. The subtle trap is that you can get to know the Bible, what we call the Word, without the Spirit. That you could become someone who knows the Bible cover to cover, but the Spirit's not involved. You've not allowed the Spirit to come in and do that work in you. And it just becomes cold. It becomes like this cold knowledge, um, legalistic thing. Scripture says that by spirit and truth, we're formed. And it says in verse 13 here, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. But he doesn't give up. 
he keeps coming at Jesus in different places, through the Pharisees, um, to the garden. If you read the section of the garden of Gethsemane, like that is just a powerful moment where Jesus is wrestling through some things. Over and over again. I think Jesus shows us, though, as his human self, as his fully human, how to respond to these lies. And I don't know what you're experiencing in your life, but this idea that Jesus was fully human, full of the Holy Spirit, gives us a little bit of courage gives me a little bit of hope that the things that I'm struggling with, the things that are, I'm wrestling with, um, aren't something I can't overcome. You can't do it with willpower. But with the Spirit, Jesus shows us that we can do this. Listen to this quote from James K. Smith again. He says, Worship works from the top down. You might say, in worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We're called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Now, this morning we swapped things around a bit. I felt like I wanted to teach and then give us space to respond. And that's what we're going to do. And so this morning, I don't know if any of this, you know, hit you in some way or the other. Maybe for some of you in the room, you're like, I want to recognize the voice of God again in my life. Like, or you've never experienced God saying something to you and, and, and it just, you can just, you, you just know it. You just know that something's come to you through reading scripture or through a friend's conversation of encouragement to you. And, and maybe you're not sure if that's the voice of God and you, and you need to work that out. Uh, you want to work that out with somebody else, but maybe you haven't felt like God has spoken to you and really just said something to you or encouraged you in any way in, 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 in the recent you know, months or even years. Maybe, you're, maybe you need to hear God's voice again. Maybe some of you in the room are struggling with an area of obedience. And it may not even be something in, in the arena of what you would call like, you know, major sin or things like maybe. But it also might be that God's been wanting you to do something or to, ask, to, to, to reconcile a relationship or whatever it is in your life. And you just flat out have not obeyed. You haven't done it. Maybe there's an area of your life of trust. And you, you've just not been able to trust God. It's, it's been an area in your life um, that you just assume not think about it. Then trust God with it. 
And so this morning, I'm going to invite the crew up. And they're going to lead us. They're going to lead us into some worship. And here's what you get to do. You don't have to um, do anything. <laughs> you can sit there. You can participate in, in sing, and that's worship. But maybe you need to deal with some things um, around the room. And we're going to have, I mean, I'm going to be standing towards the back and, and maybe some of our other uh, leaders, maybe Dan and some others, um, just standing around. And if you want to like maybe have prayer with somebody, maybe there's a, you would like some of us to pray with you about something you need to trust God with, or maybe there's some things that you, let's just throw it out there. If you need to confess something, scripture says, Hey, confessing it to somebody is, is that's just like this ultimate way of God meeting us and forgiving us is confessing our sins to each other. Maybe you just want to hear the voice of God again. And you're just, you feel like your life is in a wilderness of just, it's barren. And you just want to feel and you want to hear God again. That's what we want to make space for this morning. And we have time. So I would encourage you to worship.